Well, John 11, uh, a beautiful passage of Scripture where it reveals to us some of the, uh, some of the, just the power of Christ on display, but also something of the humanity and the emotional life of Jesus. Uh, here, when I, I remember when I was in um, vacation Bible school, we did Bible drills where you quoted a verse and then you passed on to the next round. And the first verse was always found here in John eleven thirty five. Jesus what? Wept. I mean, that's pretty good. You can put that to memory this week. But what a profound uh, truth that is for us in John 11. And, and Lord willing, in the days ahead, we'll look at that more in detail. And uh, so let me just refresh uh, your minds, beginning in verse number one, just a few verses here as we look at this passage together. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. His brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Interesting beginning into this uh, miracle. Uh, that Jesus does, which John refers to as the last of the signs in Jesus' ministry that he gives to us. Many years ago, I was sitting with family uh, during the last evening of a loved one's uh, battle with cancer here uh, in the world, and it struggled for months uh, dealing with all the therapies and all the things that were going on. And by this point, he was uh, he was in very uh, sad situation, very difficult to look at, uh, shortness of breath and all the things that go with that. I have been in nursing homes before as a pastor, and, and but this one was family. This was almost more uh, difficult for me to deal with, uh, and yet there he was. In our evening together, you speak in hushed tones. Many of you have been there in, in your own family circumstances, situations, conversations. You reminisce and you think. But it's also a, a, that evening in particular was a, a prayer meeting, uh, to say the least. Uh, people were uh, taking turns praying and asking God for healing earnestly asking him to raise him up and deliver him, strengthen his bones, bring back his, his breath and his lungs and his muscles so that he could get up on that sick bed and dance and sing to the glory of God. Um, they were asking for a miracle. It was a hard situation for everyone, as you can imagine. But later on that night, sometime in the middle of the night, he would pass on. Uh, and the question asked, we ask ourselves, that comes up, did God not answer our prayers? Was he impassionate or did he not care about the grief and the sorrow that would come about um, by his passing, my uncle's passing? Was he just up there and be like, well, you know, it's just part of life. We'll just, you know, grief is grief. And so just let him experience that. As you meditate on questions like that, and maybe you have your own and the difficulties that you face when you pray to God and ask God for a particular outcome, and God chooses to answer in a different way, I think the, 
the better question, at least the, the more profitable question for you and me, is this. What do you do when God chooses not to answer your prayers the way you think he should? What if he moves in a way in which is contrary or counter to the way you feel like you would like him to move and answer? Because I don't know how long you've been saved and walking the Christian life. He often does that, doesn't he? Is he still trustworthy? Is he still faithful? Uh, Does it make him less good or less loving? Well, some of that is touched in John chapter 11, among other things. It is the last of Jesus' signs recorded in John, as I've mentioned. And it is a fitting miracle that uh, Jesus did, almost etching in the minds of his disciples as they get ready to face not Lazarus' death and the grieving of that, uh, but their greatest trial and test of faith, Jesus' own death. So when John sets it up in in his gospel, he sets for them Jesus having power to raise Lazarus from the dead right after he just spoke to the leaders, I have authority to lay down my life and raise it up again. And so they see this vivid picture of the authority of Jesus and raising Lazarus from the dead, and it will be etched in their minds as they face Jesus' own execution. Now there's several key thoughts uh, in this narrative, and we'll see throughout our time in it this week and and the the week to follow. Uh, One is Jesus deliberately delays his trip. You find that in our reading uh, this morning, uh, don't you, in verse number uh, six, he stayed two days longer after hearing Lazarus was ill. And so what's up with that? Uh, Then another thought we see in this is that Jesus does not spare his people from grief, but purpose has a purpose in their pain and will bring about a greater joy. That's the same thing true in our own life. He does not spare us from grief or pain, but has purposed to bring about greater joy through them. Of course, we see something of the humanity of Jesus and that our hope is Christ himself and not a particular event. So I want to look at it this morning with you, first of all, just setting, uh, just in the setting and the occasion of what's going on, and we'll just walk through this first part of John 11 this morning. Uh, notice with me the setting and, and a few observations with that. The place, well, it doesn't necessarily tell us where Jesus is. Most people believe he's about a day's journey from Bethany of uh, Judea. And it's about a couple of miles from Jerusalem. So it's very close to where he had been. He went back to where uh, the baptism of John was taking place and ministering in, in that area where Jesus' ministry was more popular. They, they listened to him. They believed him. That's what we heard at the end of chapter number 10. Many came to him. Um, or verse number 40 of chapter number 10. He went away across Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. Many came to him and they said, John did no signs, but everything that John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. So Jesus was in a a popular place of ministry where he was well received. Jerusalem, not so much. They tried to kill him. Uh, But here, it's a more more appropriate place to minister. And while he was there, news of Mary and Martha, their brother being sick, came to him. You find that at the very opening of that. Now, 
we know Mary and Martha and Lazarus were close friends with Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. They oftentimes offered hospitality to him on his way and while he was ministering in Jerusalem. And so there was a, a closeness to that relationship between uh, Jesus and this family. Mary is mentioned here as the one who anointed his feet because there were so many Marys in the New Testament. He's just trying to connect the dots for you. And plus, we'll see that in chapter number 12. And so the setting is, here is a close friend of Jesus who, who is sick and, and at the point of maybe death even, we know he died, uh, and they go and they send to Jesus and they say, come, he's sick, he would want to know this, just like you would if you, a friend of yours was sick and, and they assumed he would come and heal him uh, and take care of this problem. And so that's kind of the setting, the the, the problem, we don't know what he was sick with. We don't know what came upon him. If it was an immediate thing or whatever it was, we're not told. We just know that he was ill. There's also something in this first part of this and preserved throughout this narrative, which I think is important. So we see the place, the settings in Bethany where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are from. Uh, the problem is that Lazarus was sick, but the preservation found in this passage is, is, is really seen in verse number 3. Notice, they sent word uh, to Jesus by way of messenger, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That language is that of friendship. As if to say, Lord, your good friend, Lazarus, the one you're close to, the, your, your good friend is ill. Uh, he's sick. And so they, they really lay out this reality of Jesus' connection, or at least their connection, that affection between Jesus and, and Lazarus and Mary and Martha. His friend is very sick. And in case we miss that, you know, because sometimes we say we're friends with so-and-so, and so-and-so and, and -so be like, yeah, they're pretty good people, and they go on about their business. And and, and so you kind of get like, like the relationship isn't balanced out, that, that I'm friends with them and they're not friends with me or something like that. And so John reminds us again in verse number five. Now, Jesus, what does your translation say? Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Uh, the, the action that, that appears to us, which seems to be harsh or weird, or what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you waiting? Why didn't you answer the way that you answered with the, the nobleman's son, who you just spoke the word, and, and he was healed that very moment? Why didn't you do that? And, and why are you treating your closest friends this way? The answer, at least we're secured in the reality that Jesus does everything he does in this narrative based upon his love for them. He loves them. They know his love because they said the one you love is ill. Uh, and John and the disciples understand his love because it, John wants us to, to grasp that reality. He's preserving that reality that everything he's doing in the life of Mary and Martha and, and even Lazarus at this moment is motivated by his love. And notice the connection here, uh, and you can see that for yourself. Verse number 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, that's Mary and Lazarus. And verse number 6 begins with so. 
the ESV. That word means therefore, or on account of his love, because he loved them, then the action which follows flows out of that. In other words, he is moving and acting in, in response to his love for them. And what does he do in love? What does love compel him to do? Well, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why even mention that? Why even bring that up? Well, because it is easy to think about difficulty and grief and pain in our life apart from God's love. His work in, in what he's doing in your life at this very moment, the season you're in, the situations that you're facing, whether physical or spiritual, relational, emotional, whatever they are going on in your world, his providential work and care is motivated by his glory according to his character and nature and because he loves you. Do you believe that? Now by providence, I mean the way in which God sovereignly And don't miss this. Jesus is working deliberately. He's not just haphazardly running around. I think sometimes I'm just trying to catch up with my thought, you know, and and wondering what I'm going to do next. But Jesus doesn't work that way. When I say providence, I mean the way in which God sovereignly and purposely brings about his will and work, not just in creation, though that's true, but in your lives. So how he brings about his work and will in your lives, which is fully actualized by being conformed to the image of Christ. The the end goal, how he's getting from here to the end goal of being conformed to the image of Christ, that, that beatific vision of seeing him being transformed and being like him, the, the process to get to that end is his sovereign providential work. And what we have preserved for us, at least in this instance, is that his motivation behind whether the good providence or what we might call the dark providence is guided not aimlessly but by his love for you, his love for me. He did not stay two more days because he was impassionate about what was going on. It doesn't matter. In fact, he stayed two days purposefully because he loved them And it's a reminder to us that that as sometimes we forget this, and so I'll just remind you as I've been reminding my own self, that we read this, we read chapter number 11 pretty quickly. I know it's quite a few verses. How many do we have? 57 verses. So it's not your normal devotional read. It takes you a few minutes to get through the passage. But you get from beginning to end pretty quickly, don't you? And sometimes we miss the weightiness of the actions of Jesus and the purpose, the deliberate purpose in which he is bringing about. They waited four days. There was grief and mourning and all that involved in this process. And yet we we have preserved for us lest we doubt it, because that's what we tend to do in difficulties. We doubt the love of God. We have preserved for us that God moves in our lives, particular ways because of his love for us. Why else mention it so many times? And even the people in his own day later on, after he weeps in verse number 35, 36, they said, uh, the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now don't disconnect yourself and think Lazarus is, 
is a special somebody to Jesus, and that's not true of you if you're in Him. See how He loves you. See how He cares for you. How He is for you and not against you. And and doesn't that help us in the up and down of the Christian life? The ebb and flow. We have preserved for us the love of God. Notice with me also the deliberate ministry and the glory of God. And we see that first glimpse of that in verse number 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, heard that Lazarus was sick, he already knew what was going on. Do you like that? You tell somebody and they already know. So they're just smiling the whole time you say it. Well, he probably wasn't smiling in this event, but he did know what was going on. And he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is not dismissing the reality that Lazarus would die, as some believe. Jesus thought, well, this would be all right, and and he'll get over this. And the the end conclusion is not death. Uh, You know, death won't be involved in this. He's not saying that at all. But the, the ultimate end of this situation and this trouble is not death. And what we'll see when we look next week at him being the resurrection, that same thing is true in every other circumstance in your life, every circumstance. The ultimate end is not death. And so he says, this is for purpose. There's a reason why this is going on. In fact, uh, we believe that, uh, and most people comment, that by the time the messenger got to Jesus, a day's journey from Lazarus, he was probably already dead. Because by the time he came to Jesus, told Jesus, Jesus waited two days, the fourth day took his journey back to Bethany. There's four days, right? That's math, and you never thought you'd have that on a Sunday morning. So there you go for the two of you that love math in here. But I want you to understand that Jesus is, is saying that behind this situation, behind this event, behind this sickness, rests the reality of the glory of God. Do you see that in verse number 4? This is not to magnify death. This is not to give mourning or grieving or even the curse of humanity or sin or any of those other things that we tend to think about, a platform to exalt itself and we just be overwhelmed by it. The purpose of all of this in, in this situation is to glorify God. And by glorify, we don't simply mean, though that's the outcome, as we see the glory of God, it it produces in us, leads us to glorify God, which is us praising Him in all of His greatness and His majesty and His might. But what he's meaning here in this section, I believe, is he's saying that through this incident, through this difficulty, God is revealing Himself in a magnificent and particular way. He is glorifying Himself by revealing Himself to us. And now you see in verse number 4, it is for the glory of God, for the unveiling of God, His power, His might, His majesty. But, But we see more particular, more focused about the glory of God. And he says, so that, that in God glorifying Himself and demonstrating Himself through this situation, circumstance, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so we see this revelation of God Himself, but this revelation of God Himself is, is magnified for the purpose that the Son of God may be seen as who He is. 
beautiful and powerful and, and, and the promised one that has come from God. All of this being brought about so that Christ may be seen, God may be known in this circumstance. He could have spoke a word and Lazarus could have come back to life and he not even take the journey, not even put his own life in jeopardy as the disciples said this. But he understood and realized it was better. These things worked out better this way that God may be glorified. And there is an element in this. We'll talk about it in a moment, Lord willing. But there's an element in this where we, we trust God's wisdom more than we trust our own understanding in the situation. But the outcome, the purpose that we have in front of us, that God would be known and make himself known through this sickness that Christ would be seen for who he is. But there's also another reason we see in verse number, um, one of the preceding verses, in verse number 15. It is not just so that the glory of God and that the Son of God may be glorified through it, may be known for who he is, but he says in verse number 15, and, and you've got to have a little sense of humor for, with his disciples. So he's trying to be nice about this whole thing. And, and he says, we're going back and we're going to, to take care of this to a friend Lazarus. Um, he's asleep. We're going to go wake him up. That's a euphemism. You know that for he's dead and we're going to bring him back to life. I'm going to. Not we. You get in and... And they're, they're like, well, that's good. He's asleep. He's going to recover. Well, you won't sleep when you're sick. And, and so he has to plainly tell them, verse number 14, Lazarus is dead. And by this time, he has been dead probably three days, some suggest. And, uh, and that's just trying to do the math. And notice verse number 15, what he says to his disciples. So we see... The, the determinative plan of Christ, his, his deliberate ministry is seen in focusing in on the glory of God through this circumstance in their life. But also he says it is for their own good and their own faith. Verse number 15, Lazarus has died. And for your sakes, I am glad I was not there, that you may believe and let us go to him. Two days waiting so that God may be glorified, but also that the faith of his own disciples and Mary and Martha and all the people around that would see this thing would be strengthened. The end that they would believe. In fact, we might say it this way, that God would be praised by bringing back to life. How true that is. God would reveal himself through this encounter and Christ will be seen as who he is. And I want to say that I think that ought to be, and I, I should take that out of there and not say I think, this should be our very prayer and heart as we face difficulties in our own life. That as we work through seasons of life and as we, we deal with the, the hits and bruises and knocks and all the things that come at us and the, the difficulties, some of which are, are dramatic and overwhelming as we go through these, that earnest prayer and desire that God would make himself known to us and make Christ known to us and that others may see the beauty of Christ through us, that should be our earnest desire and prayer. I think Paul gives us that in the 
in the book of Philippians when he says, My greatest anticipation, my eager, my desire is that I may know him. And there is that knowledge of him and the power of the resurrection, that, that power of that new life in us, a new creation that we are. But there's also that knowledge that comes in the fellowship of his suffering. The fellowship of walking through these difficulties. Walking through these dark providences and seasons where we find out that we are incapable in and of ourselves to deal with them without the power and help of God. Let me give you a few realities and a, and a couple of principles. There's six of these all together. Three realities and three principles I think may be of encouragement and help to you and, uh, and to me as well as we consider this reality and what Jesus is doing when it comes to suffering in our own life. And you may want to jot these down. You may not. They're very, uh, reality means they should be plain and obvious, right? Are you with me? We can <laughs> join in any moment, right? Number one, you and I will walk through things in this life without an immediate answer to why. There are difficulties that we face, hardships, sufferings, without an attachment to a particular sin or a cause and effect. In other words, we we are walking with God, we're trusting Him, we're trying to be faithful in in where He's called us, and we find that, that in the midst of that, that we are faced with things that are overwhelming in sorrow and suffering. And sometimes, like Job, we kind of wonder what's going on, and God never specifically tells us why. Have you found that to be the case in your own life? And we want to attach, and it's healthy as we go through things, to say, is there, is there some reason that this has been brought about in my life? And we may not be given the answer, but we walk through difficulties without immediately that connection to why. We may ask why, we may look and search, but, but we have not that connection. The second reality, which is obvious, because we don't know why Lazarus was sick, do we? We know it's for the glory of God, but we don't know, was he around people or, or, or what happened? We don't know. But the second reality is this, being in Jesus, being born again, being a Christian, does not lessen or minimize the pain or hurt we experience in this life. Do you believe that to be true? In fact, it may increase it. I think sometimes it is our habit to miss or minimize the extent of the sufferings of people that we know and what they're going through. We tend to gloss it over or or make little of it or we make those cute little bumper stickers, smile, God loves you. I don't know one person's ever been helped by that statement, do you? Now, there are times where someone's being, you know, they need to kind of knock on the head and you tell them, you know, stop it and all that stuff like that. There's times we need that kind of language, but it is our habit, usually, especially in religious circles, to minimize the extent of someone's suffering. We don't want to worship it. We don't want to exalt it above what we ought to exalt it, but we do minimize it and we make little of it. But there's also, along with that, there is that guilt that we feel when we are overwhelmed with life circumstances. Have you ever been there? I mean, I could be out by myself on this one. And uh, I'll, I'll finish and give an altar call and go down myself. 
I guess. And what I'm trying to say is that we, 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 because we believe in the existence of God and because we've been given the promises that God has given to us because the Holy Spirit lives within us, all of that does not minimize the reality that, that, that difficulty, sorrow, and trials will not be heavy. I mean, they are heavy. They're, they're hurtful. They, they keep you awake at night. They're, they're pressing and pulling and stretching our faith. And, and we, if we're going to be honest with anything, we must be honest with that. And for those of you who, who gauge your spirituality based upon the guilt you feel for the present moment of the pain you're going through, then, then you're, in a, you're in a very difficult situation. Four days had gone by. They wept. They were with their brother as he was sick, as he was at the point of death. They were talking among themselves, no doubt, about if Jesus could get there in time, would it be okay? And, and they went through the proceeding. They even hired mourners to come and help them get it all out and mourn. Peter refers to them as fiery trials, which grieves us and tests our faith and James refers to them as various kind of trials, and by that, there are relational difficulties, and there's the physical ailments, sicknesses, and diseases without cures, and all the things that come at us, and, and we're not saying the reality is they are heavy and hard, but the third reality is this, and Jesus does not spare his people from grief, but purposes from their pain, he will bring about a greater joy. He purposes from their pain, he will bring about a greater joy. In John sixteen twenty, looking at his disciples, speaking and preparing them for his own death, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, or amen, amen, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. <laughs> you, you could add to that, but Sunday comes, right? You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The very grief of the death of Christ and out of that grief through his resurrection will be this, this unquenchable joy in the resurrection of their Lord and that reality that he lives. Or we might see Paul's words we saw Wednesday night, 2 Corinthians 4. Let me just read that for you. And for your reference, you can uh, write down 17 and 18. The whole chapter's good, though. You should read the whole chapter. He says this, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comparison, as we look not on the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's not setting his joy or our joy in immediate relief. Uh, don't get me wrong, God does give us immediate relief sometimes, doesn't he? Doesn't he move and, and work in situations where we step back and we say, praise God and, and rejoice in him and give glory to him. And, 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 but our, our, our joy, our ultimate joy, the fullness of joy is not in immediate relief. It isn't Lazarus being brought from the dead, but it's in the fact that Christ would die and be brought back from the dead. Our joy is secured, not in, not in certain circumstances getting better, but in the fact that Jesus was put to death and he raised from the dead and all that he secured for us in that act. 
So we might say it this way, a greater joy we have in the middle of our suffering now is knowing God, clinging closer and seeing the beauty and power of Christ. Through suffering, we learn experientially what we have been taught factually. But even this joy is but a precursor, just a taste of the joy we have in the presence of Christ in his glory. And notice you see that in Paul's text, don't you? He says, eternal weight of glory. It is out of proportion. He says, it's not worthy to be compared, but it is attached. It is related to this light and momentary affliction. What I'm saying is that, that while Jesus does not spare his people from grief, he purposes that from pain and suffering and sorrow, he will bring about a greater joy, unimaginable joy as we see him face to face. This is what he purchased for us on the cross. And let me give you three principles as to go along with this reality. The first is this. How do we deal with that? How do we, we pray to God or, or how do we deal with, with, with carrying all of this and dealing with suffering and sorrow and all the things that face us in this life? And I think the first principle is simple. Faith looks to Christ and our Heavenly Father in times of crisis. In our times of pain and fear through prayer. That's what they did, right? Lazarus is ill. And so what do they do? They send to Jesus. Uh, you have difficulty in your life, in, in, in relationships in your life. You have difficulty in, in, in health. You have difficulty in, in all the things going on, financial, whatever it may be. What do you do in those situations? Uh, we should do what they do. If we're, we're, we're walking by faith and not by sight, faith looks to Christ and God in these times of calamities and situations. It seeks God through prayer it turns to him. And I think that's a reminder to us because sometimes I think God deals with the big stuff. Don't bother him with the petty stuff. How many of you feel that way and think that way? Just to show our hands real quickly, we'll move on. We don't admit that, do we? But isn't that our practice sometimes? We'll trust God with these huge items that we can, but in, in every other item we will we will just stick with human intervention and then whatever we can do. no. Faith leads us always to be praying and seeking God for help and intervention and prayer in all the ways he helps. We should continually be asking God for strength and wisdom and aid. To sum it up another way, we should be praying people. Now, you know this, and I, but I take it as my responsibility to remind you, prayer is faith at work, isn't it? We say that when you can't do anything else, pray about it. You should pray about it. And then when you can't do anything else, you should pray more about it. Uh, Prayer is faith at work, trusting God that can help. Do you think God can help you in your circumstances? You know, the things that you're facing that, that are overwhelming, the sorrow, the things that bring you grief and difficulty. Can God work in those situations? Is Is prayer just something that we just do to make us feel better? Some kind of psychological release to where we're like, well, we got that pressure off of us. We, 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 we don't, there's nothing we can do about it, but we can just release it into the nothingness in the universe and, and, and by chance. Or is prayer actively 
laying hold of a throne of grace and of a God who is able to do something about what we're asking for. Can God work in your wayward children's heart? that are miles from your presence? Can God work in, in circumstances and in, in things in your life, the difficulties, even the, the sins that keep tripping you up? Can God do something about that? Do you believe that, church? Can God work and move and, and help you, give you wisdom when you feel like you're at wit's end? That's an expression. Everyone knows what that means. Borderline of sanity, I guess that's what that means, right? Do you believe God is able to do anything? Isn't that belief a, a test or testified? Isn't it fleshed out by the fact that we actively and actually seek God in prayer? I think sometimes we think prayer is just one of those things we know we have to do and it's there for us and, and yet we, we fail to exercise and demonstrate that uh, in practice. What I'm trying to say to you is that prayer is faith at work, trusting God who can help. Ephesians tells us, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. Or Jeremiah, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth and by your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Do you believe that? What is impossible with man is possible with God in Luke eighteen twenty seven. Oh, that we would get back to praying like that, seeking Christ in prayer and praying for that help that we need to a God who is able. Oh, they knew that. They knew Christ was able. They said, even the women said, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. So prayer is not futile. It's a work. It is how we actively attain divine help. We pray and God intervenes. The second principle is this. For the faithful, faith rests in the wisdom and purpose of God when it cannot see the plan of God. Is that very difficult for you? One old preacher said it this way. It says, when you cannot see his hand, you trust his heart. It's the reality that we pray and we actively pray according to as best as we understand, according to God's word and according to God's will. But at the end of the day, our faith is, is reminding us to cling, cling hold to the wisdom and purpose of God. So if he doesn't answer the way we ask, it is not a, an accusation against God. It is resting and trusting that God is wiser than us. He sees and he knows more than we know. And so we trust him according to his purpose and according to his wisdom and according to his love. There are times that God spares us and there's times God sustains us. There are times he moves in our life quickly and, and he resolves an issue in our life. And there's other issues that some of you have been carrying for, for decades. And yet even in this, we're called back to and faith reminds us to trust him even in these longer battles because he is good. And his motivation is his love for us. And to add to that, he knows better what's better for you and me than we do. Do you believe that? Can you trust him? Do you know the love of God? 
and you come here this morning and visiting with us, and we appreciate you being with us and visiting with us, and so you come frequently with us, and that's the same question said before you. Do you know the love of God? Have you ever experienced his love and the saving purpose of Christ? Having your sins forgiven and being washed and made a new creation in Christ Jesus and knowing that, that he has redeemed redeemed you. Is this your experience? That's, that's where we experience the love of God in Christ, isn't it? And dear believer, if you've experienced the love of God in Christ and salvation, how much more do we see that fleshed out in every trial and situation in our life? The third principle is this, and in conclusion, that is, faith acknowledges the adequate and abundant provision of God in every circumstance. He tells Paul this truth in closing, doesn't he? My grace is what? My grace is sufficient for you. He moves in our life according to his love, according to his divine wisdom and sovereignty. And as he does that, he reminds us he never leads us where his grace will not sustain us. It doesn't mean you're strong enough on your own. As some have taken that verse out of context, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. You're not strong enough on your own or he'll never give you anything more you can bear. That's not what the Bible's saying. It is in the middle of all of your difficulties, in the middle of all your circumstances, his grace will always be adequate and abundant to remain faithful, trusting, and continuing on in this life. He will sustain you. I don't know what you're going through. I know what many of you have faced and what you're facing. And I can just close with that. He loves you. His grace is sufficient for what you're going through. Trust him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning, for your goodness to us. Thank you for this reminder this morning and the reminder in my own heart. I want to pray that you would just strengthen us, uh, encourage us as we see our Savior working in the lives of these saints in the new testament is a reminder of his work in our own lives in our day and lord we pray you let this be food for thought meditation throughout this week and god if anyone here this morning does not know you i pray would you even draw them to yourself attracted to the beauty and the majesty to the faithfulness of our savior and lord if they would confess their sins confess christ as savior They would call upon the name of the Lord, as the Bible says. They should be saved. I pray that even now they would do that in Jesus' name. Amen.